tonight, we will move on to Galatians chapter five. And so after you have gained freedom, what is the next thing you should do with your freedom? That's the question that Paul tries to answer in Galatians chapter five. Um, who would like to read for us tonight? It's Galatians five is not very long. I think just 26 verses or so, yeah. Any volunteer? I can read. Okay, awesome. Okay, so like I've hinted earlier, Paul has shown us that we have been set free in Christ because of the spirit of adoption that we have re that we have received. And so the natural question that follows is what follows freedom, right? What follows um, sonship? Um, for some people, the answer to that was going back to slavery, um, which in this context, slavery is legalism, you know, um, a religious spirit, or going the other direction towards lasciviousness or license. And so what Paul is doing in chapter five is that he's showing us that the spirit that, that sets us free from, from the yoke of slavery is able to help us. Um, it's also able to set us free from the yoke of our human nature, which is the thing that tries to draw us back into slavery. So we'll read Galatians 5 from verse 1 to 6. Stephanie? Okay, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1 to 6. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again in a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, sorry, if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who has, sorry, who becomes circumcised, that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. Okay, thank you so much, Stephanie. There's a lot to unpack in these um, first few verses. What we'll start, uh, like the focus of our study tonight is in the first two words, stand fast which other translation says stand firmly. So the one who has been set free can certainly lose that freedom for sure, even if not positionally, at least experientially. And so that's, that's why the counsel from Jesus through the apostle Paul is stand fast in the liberty which Christ has made you free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Now, I, like I mentioned last week, I know that these scriptures can be, the exegesis of these scriptures can be used um, to meet different needs. So for example, you can use this verse to talk about the yoke of like sin, for example, but that's not what it's referring to when it says, do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Like we've seen in chapter four, the yoke of bondage is the, is the, yoke, is the yoke of religious activity, the yoke of um, religious bondage, the yoke of legalism, the yoke that seeks to step outside of faith and begin to trust in activity, begin to trust in, in, in materials, things that have no effect on the conscience. 
begin to trust in those things for justification, begin to trust in those things for completion. Paul says, having begun in the spirit, will you be completed? Will you be fulfilled? Will you be made perfect in the flesh? And Paul is, is, is quite um, troubled that it's possible for someone who has been set free by Christ to become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. You can replace the word bondage here with slavery. And my first question to us is, what is it about the yoke of bondage or the yoke of slavery that makes it so enticing to even the believer? That makes it, because you would think that if someone has been freed, right, from being a slave, that they wouldn't even, even, if for, even for a great amount of money, they wouldn't want to go back to the thing that put them under. But here, Paul is making it clear that, in fact, the people he's writing to were actually more drawn towards slavery than towards freedom. And so what is it about slavery? What is it about the bondage that makes it, that, that makes it have such a grip over our hearts? This is so important because after the highs of Galatians chapter 4, after we've seen our liberty in Christ, and now maybe it's really top of mind right now, we're more conscious of the areas you know, where we are not trusting God enough. Paul is making very clear that if we don't stand fast, it's possible that we can be drawn away and go back into the same cycle of dead works from which Christ redeemed us. So in your own view, what is it about the yoke of slavery? What is it about the yoke of religion that makes it more enticing than the way of faith? Can I try? Yeah. Okay, for me, it's like that, eagerness to, you know that soul thing, the eagerness to please men, it's what they can see, it's what they can, you know, um, uh, how do I put it, praise you for maybe a flow, well done, you've done so well, but at the end of the day, it's all flesh, however, it's, you know, for, it's, it caters to the audience of men, and a lot of times we like the praises of men, um, yeah, or maybe almost all the time. So that's what I think on, you know, from my own perspective and from what I went through last week. Just okay. the eagerness to please men. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Steph. Nancy? Your hand was up. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know what happened and I couldn't come in. So um, I feel that um, one of the things, one of the reasons why we like to go back to our sins or back to slavery is that please we can't hear you we can't hear you thank <laughs> you ah, okay could calm down now <laughs> can you hear me now please yeah i think something was obstructing your microphone okay 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 sorry about that mm -hmm. um so i was saying that i think one of the reasons why we have this um slavery has this allure for us is the comfort that we we derive from it you know being being in we haven't been in slavery for so long you know we are just comfortable with, with that with that um, form of slavery we are just comfortable with it and um, my mind also goes back to what uh, i talked about uh, earlier on and then also even in the um like i'm looking back to the journey of the israelites when they were leaving egypt and they were leaving slavery they still wanted to go back at some point they wanted to go back to the onion mm -hmm. that they were eating you know so I, I think that the comforts we enjoy in slavery or well perceived comfort so to speak um leads us back yeah i was going to ask what is it about the onions that was so attractive that 
they were willing to forego. Why, why was the lure of onions more precious than the promise of God? Why was the lure of, think about it, right? Esau received the birthright and then somebody offered him stew and he told the person that this stew is more valuable to me than the birthright. And Hebrews 12 tells us that we should take heed so that there will be none profane amongst us who, like Esau, despised the birthright and he sought it with repentance. He sought it with tears and he found no place for repentance. He despised it. And the truth is that the yoke of slavery is so alluring because it is tangible. It is visible. It fits to our reasoning as humans. You see, the promise that God gave Israel was in the spirit. That promise was in the spirit. <laughs> but onions was physical. It was tangible. It was something they could see. And I'm here to say to us tonight that the promise of our faith is not in anything tangible. As long as our eyes are fixed on the externals, it's possible that a time will come when we stop standing fast and become drawn back into the yoke of slavery. The hope of glory that Paul speaks of, the hope of our faith, the, and the beauty of our faith, the glory of our faith is not in the visible realm. It's not in anything tangible. In fact, everything tangible has been judged by one single word, and that's temporal, temporal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that the things that are seen are temporal. Now you understand why when Jesus showed up on the scene, he didn't necessarily make poverty eradication his primary agenda as caring as he was. He didn't make it his goal to heal every single person. And even till today, they, like the healing power of God is available, but it's not God's primary agenda that every believer is healed because those things usually draw away our attention from the reality into the tangible. And sometimes God in his mercy can even allow sickness to perpetuate so that our eyes can, can just be withdrawn from the visible to the invisible. The promise of God is in the spirit. You know, the yoke of slavery always appeals to our reasoning as humans. If I do something, right, like the law of cause and effect, if I do something, there's supposed to be an effect. So God is supposed to answer me because of my righteousness. And we are people that are naturally drawn to formulas and just tangible expressions of faith. You know, we want formulas. We want to know that, okay, if I fast for seven days and seven nights, the glory of God will come down and God will use me, right? And so we want to lock ourselves into that formula and lock God into that formula because it's tangible, it's easily relatable with our minds. You know, we want to say, oh, if I spend all my days in church, running the church and doing everything for the church, God will remember me. You see, but God is not in, the, in a formula. This is something that God tried right from the very um, beginning of his dealings with his people. He tried to make it very clear to them that he's not in a formula. He's in the spirit. And that's why Jesus said that those who will worship him are going to have to do so in spirit and in truth because God by nature is in the spirit. He's not in any formula that we can find. And he does not have any interest in being in any formula. So do you realize that when he gave the Ten Commandments, <laughs> the second commandment, was that you should not make any graven image for yourself. When God appeared to Moses, he, he specifically and deliberately didn't show him any form so that there will be no chance that they will construct something because there was so much desire in the Israelites, in the wilderness to have a physical thing. This God we have been hearing about, can we just see something? And every time they got an opportunity, they were drawn away into idols because they just could not 
um, lay hold with the fact that the God they were dealing with was in the spirit. And the reason why God hates idolatry so much is that it, it's, it robs us. It's a counterfeit of the reality. Every time we create an image, a formula, God walks away from it because God is in the spirit and God is reality. And in our dealings with God, his focus, like we've seen in Galatians, is the reality. He always wants us to focus on that. And so the yoke of slavery is very attractive to us and it's very appealing to us because it fits with the way we think and it's visible. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Okay. And in verse two, Paul says that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. Now, Christ will profit you nothing is um, an experiential reality that Paul is speaking about, not a positional one. Um, I know that these words might be big words, but, but positional means what we looked at last week, something that is factual or something that is legal in nature. Like we said, there are no emotions when a legal decision is taken. There's, there's no grenades and, and um, rockets firing, you know, when a legal decision is taken, but as quiet and as simple as that decision is, it can shape the destinies of individuals and of nations. Right. So, of course, anyone who is in Christ is definitely going to profit from Christ, but that's positional in the spirit. Paul says that the key to unlocking the, like the fullness of the experience is not in circumcision. And now you can see why this church was so much, was so drawn to circumcision, because circumcision was such a physical sign. It was very tangible. You know, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you did with your life. As long as you look at your body and say, hmm, I was circumcised, it gives you a false sense of hope that God is with you. And in verse 3, Paul repeats what he has been saying throughout Galatians, that the pass mark for the law is 100%. Anyone who decides that, that they want to be justified, they want to be saved by the amount of good works that they do, has to be willing to go all the way because the pass mark for that kind of exercise is 100%. And if you don't hit 100%, what are you going to trust in for your justification? And that's why works and faith are, in, are in, incompatible. And in verse four, he shows us that this actually has eternal, eternal implications. He says, you have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. It's interesting that the things that Paul considers as the things that can make us fall from grace <laughs> are not necessarily you know, the things that we look at because like we're going to see when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, he doesn't categorize them as some more serious than the others. He puts sexual immorality in the same category as, as, um, as, as bitterness and sins of the heart, right? Because the thing that makes us fall from grace is our insistence on our own righteousness. And so Paul has said that what we're supposed to do is to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. In verse 5, he now shows us the first way that we are supposed to stand fast. He says, for we through the spirit, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. So what is the hope of righteousness by faith? Anyone? This is what Paul says you're, you're eagerly supposed to wait for. 
the hope of righteousness by faith. Okay. So let it be a take home, something to something to think about and, and to research and to study, to find out. But I can already give you a clue, which is that whatever it is this hope is, is not a tangible hope. And it's very important for us to grasp this point that the hope of our calling is not a tangible one. And that our eyes, if we are going to stand fast, if we are going to wait patiently, if we're going to wait eagerly, our eyes must be drawn away from the visible, you know, into the invisible. The hope that God has called us to is not a visible hope. And if our if all our attention is is is, is locked on the external metrics, you know, how many people got saved, how many people got healed. How much time have I prayed? What are my results? You know, what are other people saying? If if our eyes become locked upon, upon the physical, that is the recipe for missing the mark. The hope that God has called us to is an eternal hope. It's an invisible hope, and it's my prayer. It's my desire that all of us tonight, from tonight, that our eyes and our hunger and our desire will be for the things that are invisible, the things that make for our strength. Because everything that's visible, friends, everything that's visible has one judgment waiting for it. It is temporal. As beautiful as your physical body is, it is temporal. Of course, you are precious to God. But the thing that is precious to God about you is not so much your physicality. Of course, he cares a lot about it and he cares that you take care of it. But in the, in the grand scheme of things, the thing that is precious about you is the aspect of you that the spirit of God can dwell in. And that's the part to pay attention to. Yeah, and so this is the first thing that Paul expects anyone who wants to stand fast to know. He says, you are supposed to eagerly wait. In, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians is a treatise where Paul shows us the different postures that a Christian is supposed to take. We, we have the sitting posture where he, he shows us in Ephesians 2 that we are seated in heavenly places in Christ. He wants you to know that you are a son. And then from around verse 4, he begins to show you that now that you know that you are a son, that should change your motivation. Instead of, find, instead of using it as a motivation to continue in sin, I want you to walk worthy of your calling. So you go from sitting to walking. And then after and then when you have perfected your walking, you can now stand. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, he talks about spiritual warfare. He said, having done all to stand, which is why it's dangerous for someone who, who has not sorted out their walk of, of faith, their walk of obedience with the Holy Spirit to try to stand in warfare. You know, Paul, Paul calls it a wrestling, meaning that there's some kind of contact. And that contact can actually be fatal for such a believer sometimes. Um, if they have not perfected their walking. But it's interesting that in this verse, Paul just jumps to the, in verse one of this chapter, Paul jumps to the very last aspect, which is stand fast. Because that's the guiding principle. That's the summary of this entire chapter. You are free now, so stand fast. And the way to stand fast is to eagerly wait, to be a waiter, to be one who dwells in the presence of God. And another question to ask, or we should think about is, what does it mean to wait? What does it mean to eagerly wait? Or how do you practice waiting in your own life? If I, if I can say something, um, I, I feel like if, if I'm waiting on God, it's more or less like maybe 
praying, praying to him and then just relaxing and not being anxious until I get the results. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. The, the, the only way to wait successfully is to take your eyes away from the visible. <laughs> if your eyes are focused on the visible, for example, you come, you always come into the presence of God with a long list and, and, and you're judging the strength of your spirituality by how much of that list has been ticked off or you're judging your spirituality by how much of external answer to prayers as it were that you have gotten. You will not be able to wait. And the kind of waiting that Paul is referring to is not the waiting for an anointing, right? Because you can wait for seven days, for example, and an anointing will come upon your head and then you go and do mighty things. And like we've seen before, that's not a proof that Jesus approves of you. Because something that we may not realize is that Judas Iscariot was one of those whom Jesus sent two by two. And he was one of those who came back with a testimony that even the diamonion, even the demons were subject to your name. He was one of those who cast out devils. And yet, <laughs> when Jesus did the final analysis, he said, "All of not all of you are clean. You know, not all of you have been washed. So it means that God has no problem giving power and authority to someone who's not loyal to him. And don't ask me why. This is something that God decides to do, which is why Matthew chapter 7 makes sense that many people come in and say, hey, we cast out devils in your own name. And the thing is not that they don't know him because everyone claims to know God. But the thing is that he doesn't know them. And so to wait is to take our eyes away from the distraction. To wait is to take our eyes away from the visible and fix it on the invisible. It's when something from the invisible realm drops in your spirit and you understand it. That's when, you're, that's when your period of waiting is over. Of course, as you wait, many other things drop. You know, the anointing drops, insight drops, clarity drops. But it is when something from the invisible realm, something that is intangible but is meant to strengthen you on your journey, drops in your spirit. That's when your season of waiting is over. Isaiah 40 says that they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Friends, if we don't have a culture of waiting, you know, because this, this culture is, is lost now in the body of Christ, we have become so materialistic. Our preaching has centered so much on that which is visible, on that which is on this world, that we even despise those who preach that there is still heaven to prepare for. And yes, to an extent, this scripture has been abused also to, to make it look like we are just idly waiting and avoiding everything in this world until we go to heaven. But the waiting here is, is, is waiting on the Lord. It is not waiting for a place, it's waiting for a person. And the way that this kind of waiting will succeed is that, is that we remove everything visible from our eyes and we focus on the invisible. Focus on the invisible. If we are going to stand fast, now that Christ has made us free, if you're going to maintain your, li your liberty, the culture of waiting has to be an important part of your experience. Um, Kweku, you had an answer to the question. Can you unmute to tell us what it is? Um, the, the verse um, talks about um, the, the same thing you, you were saying. By faith, he, Moses, forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, seeing him who is invisible. Hmm. Uh, 
just to emphasize uh, your point on focusing on the invisible. Yeah, exactly. And I'm happy you brought up this point because I think this is a good place to do a little bit of a detour. You know, like the question popped up in my mind this week, because like we're talking about the yoke of slavery and how to be free from it and stand fast, right? Before Moses, because all the problems that Paul is addressing in Galatians came because of the laws that God gave Moses to give the people. So before Moses, most of these ordinances did not exist. And the question then is, how did men like Joseph walk uprightly with God before the law and the ordinances were given to Moses? Because some people want to base their religion upon the things that were given to Moses. But then there, was, there were some patriarchs that walked the face of the earth before Moses showed up. And one of them was Joseph. He was able to say no to Potiphar's wife. How did he do it? If, if we are to rephrase the question in our modern 21st century context, you can say, how did people that didn't have Bible to read, didn't have church to go to? So everything that makes us very religious, everything that we hold on to, you know, as proof or as, as the things we, like we hold on to, to show that we're children of God or to even try to win God's acceptance, right? How did people that didn't have any of this, no church, no Bible, how did they walk uprightly before the Lord? How did they hold fast? How did they stand fast in the midst of contradictions? Have you ever wondered about that question? What is it about Joseph that made him say no to Potiphar's wife? Because he said that I cannot do this evil against my master, yes? If his conviction ended at my master, I can assure you that he would have done it because that's not sufficient motivation not to touch his wife. But the thing that made him not to do it is that I cannot do it. I cannot commit this sin against God. You see, when all the religious materials have been taken away, the only thing you have left is the reality. And I'm sorry for using this word, but there's no simpler way to put it better than the reality, the real thing. So because there was no Bible, there was no church, they focused on the reality. You know, today we have fellowship, we have church, we have Bible, we have YouTube, we have everything. And it's, you know, it's very possible for us to be so busy from one program to the other, from one prayer meeting to the other, that we actually miss the reality. And Paul says that the, says that the way you know that you're missing the reality is that Christ will profit you nothing. Meaning that you are going to be full of activities, but empty of life. And the way to know that you're empty of life is by checking how you walk. Paul is going to show us in the fruit of the spirit. By the time you see that your life is not producing love or joy or peace or long suffering or even patience or gentleness, you just know nobody needs to advise you. You know that, that you have not been walking in the spirit. And so what Paul wants us to do is to pay attention to the reality. We said when we did Galatians chapter two, that there's something at work in each believer. And that's the mystery of the gospel, which is that God has found a way to work in each person. And our glorification, everything about us is going to be tied to our ability to, to descend that work and to align with it. It's important, even when we go to preach the gospel, because these days we've made preaching the gospel about having a message. We think that the gospel is primarily a message. <laughs> but the gospel is an experience that becomes a message. And we can never convert anyone by, by a message because 
The thing that makes us who we are is not a message, it's a reality. We ought to pay attention to that reality. I mean, look at what Paul says at the end. He says, for in Christ Jesus, verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. You see, love is the engine that powers faith. And the working of love is, is, an, is, an, is an internal working. Paul tells us in, in Romans chapter 5 that the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, right? And he tells us in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that that love constrains us. So if you pay attention to the reality, you know when the love of God in your heart is constraining you. It has already been poured into your heart. You don't need to strive for it. It's there. It's just that we are so focused on the visible, on the external, that we, that we miss it a lot. You know when the love of God is, is compelling you to give, is compelling you to fast, is compelling you to, um, to tarry in the presence of God, is com compelling you to pray. It's the love of God that works out the reality of faith. And that's why God hates anything that is external because it makes us lose, lose, lose sight of what is happening inside and place emphasis on what is external. Right. So we need to ask ourselves, is my life lived um, from one ritual to another? You know, I'm just ticking boxes. I prayed 12 hours today. I read my Bible. Am I living from, from ritual to ritual? Or am I living from faith to faith? Because the love that is in our hearts, or the, like the love that is in our hearts is the engine that powers the faith that we have in God. Thomasin writes here, like Moses, which was recorded that he forsook the pleasures of Egypt by looking on the invisible. I think our work with God is solely based on faith, which is based on what we cannot see. Yes, Paul says, why we look not at the things which are seen. It's my prayer tonight that God will correct our vision. Have you looked at the prayers that Paul prayed for the churches he planted, the church in Ephesus, the church in Colossians? He said when he heard of their faith and their love towards one another, he didn't pray that, oh God, these people are so faithful. Can you take away all their sickness? Can you give them so much money? He says, I pray for you that the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. Because he knew that the greatest gift that God could give to them was for their eyes to see that which is invisible, to see the hope that they were called to. And to hold on to that hope, to see the riches that are beyond human riches and to lay hold of it. Okay. Stephanie, can you read, continue reading from verse 7 to 15? Mm -hmm. You run well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little living leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Not only you... Not, sorry, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Yeah. Thank you, Stephanie. 
So taking it step by step, right? He says, you, you, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So right off the bat here, Paul makes it clear that the ones who have been set free in Christ are free from the law, but they are not free from the truth. They are not free from Christ. You know, Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ. I'm now a debtor to Christ. My life belongs to him. So even though he has freed me from the law, he has made me a slave of love, as it were. I'm still accountable to Jesus. So Paul expects that those who have been freed will obey the truth. <laughs> and this is very a very important balance that Paul has to bring because the word freedom here can be very easily misunderstood, right? If Christ has made us free, why don't we explore that freedom till the end? But he's saying that the freedom Christ gave us was the freedom to obey the truth. Because previously we were, we were building our lives on a performance mindset, right? And we have seen the problem with the performance mindset is that we will never measure up. And that's what hinders us from obeying the truth because either we become hypocrites at some point or we become frustrated and totally give up. And now God has changed the basis of our salvation. It's no longer on the basis of work of works, but on the basis of faith. So that even when we make mistakes, we don't have to, we don't have to put it on ourselves. We can lay it on Christ very easily. And what that kind of arrangement is supposed to do is that it's supposed to give us a fresh motivation so that it becomes easy to obey the truth because now you're not obeying it to go to heaven. You're obeying it out of love. And this is important once more because some people read the Old Testament and read the New Testament and think that the God that revealed himself as holy, as jealous, you know, has suddenly become um, very, very quiet and shy in the New Testament and very full of love. But you see, the holiness of God and the love of God are still, are still one and the same thing. God has still called us to holiness. He has called us to be partakers of his holiness. Hebrews makes it very clear that without holiness, no one is going to see the Lord. It's just the means by which God hopes to, hopes to bring us towards that conclusion. It's no longer by the works of the law, but by love. That's God's pattern. So even the one who is free is supposed to obey the truth. And Paul makes it clear from verse 8 that any teaching that, that places an emphasis on what you can do, on, your, on the visible, on the tangible expressions of faith over the inner working of the spirit, God doesn't have a double mind about it. It cannot come from the one who calls you. And in verse 10, Paul again mentions that whatever gospel that you choose to hold on to has eternal consequence because he says that he has confidence that they will not be otherwise minded but that those who trouble them will bear their judgment. So if anyone says that I'm going to be justified by circumcision, for example, right, then they're going to have to take it all the way. And there's a very um, crass, I, I think verse 12 is, is better imagined than explained, right? He said, I wish that those who trouble you <laughs> would even cut themselves off. What Paul is saying is that you know, circumcision only cuts off a part of the false king. And some people are preaching that you must do this to complete your salvation. And he's saying that you should, those people shouldn't only cut off, shouldn't cut off the false king. They should castrate themselves. It's very strong language. It's very vivid language. And you wonder, Paul is talking about the fruit of the spirit, which is love, right? How come that he, he appears to be very crass as it were towards these people? 
But the reality is that if we see, if we see the truth of what God is building in his body, if we see the reality, we would, we would have a, a hatred for the counterfeit. If you see anyone trying to indoctrinate your children in a way that will lead them into slavery, you're going to have a very sincere hatred for such doctrine, for such teaching. And, and you see, sometimes God puts an anointing on some people to oppose certain wrong teachings, doctrinal errors in the body of Christ. It is only when we see the body of Christ from its reality that we realize how dangerous erroneous doctrine is. And Paul's um, statement here in verse 12 will not be a hyperbole to us in any way. So either you preach circumcision or you preach the offense of the cross. It's offensive because it takes away, it takes away as it were our masculinity as humans and makes us dependent on God. And then in verse 13, it says that you have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So don't abuse your liberty, but instead pay attention to the love of God that is in your heart and true love serve one another, right? And so Paul is going to expand on this a bit later, but the proof that you love someone is that you serve them and this is perhaps it's a hint. If you're trying to love someone, you're trying to win someone's attention, if you're trying to show them that you love them, the only way to go about it is to serve them, right? As, as a believer, you are in your workplace and you would like the Lord to use you to reach out to people out of love so that they can be saved. Paul says the, way to, the place to begin is to serve other people. If you, if you do not channel your love towards serving other people, you are ultimately going to channel it towards serving yourself. And that's what's going to produce different kinds of um, works of the flesh that, that could even hurt other people. Just imagine a man or a young man, for example, that loves a woman, right? A young woman. A lot of times what we call love is very selfish because when he says, I love this woman, a lot of times it's very focused on how he's feeling or even perhaps his sexual needs right? And it is God, obviously, that created all of those desires, but it's very important that that love, in quotes, is channeled into service, so that if I truly love this person, I'm truly, and I truly want to get this person's attention, what I'm supposed to be thinking about, the way to channel that love is to ask myself, how can I serve this person? Because it's in serving them that you cannot test your love, you know, when they don't maybe accept what you're doing, or they reject you, then you now see if it was about you, your, your love in quote was about you, or if it was really about them. But if you don't channel that love towards service, what you're going to end up doing is that you're going to channel it towards self. You're going to be thinking, how can I get this lady? You know, how can I devour her as it were? You know, how can I fulfill this longing in my body for this lady? That's what it means in verse 15, that if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another because someone can say, oh, I'm free. Because in Nigeria, we have this pandemic of pastors being accused of improper sexual relations with their, with their, with their church members who are female, for example, right? And this is what it boils down to. If you believe that, okay, um, the liberty that Christ has given me is for gratifying my own desires, is for fulfilling myself, 
then you're going to hurt people. You're going to pour out that, that lust and that desire on people. And Paul knows that all of us, including myself speaking, have those desires and have those tendencies. And he says the way to channel it is to serve one another. I want us to go back today thinking, how can I serve the, this person that I'm, I'm in love with, whether, whether or not the person knows? Or how can I serve this person that I really want um, to preach the gospel to? Remember that the gospel is not first the message. Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, not because it's the logic of Christ. Of course, it is the logic of Christ. But that second verse says because it's the power of God. Because in the gospel, there's a righteousness that is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is first experienced before it is preached, before it is received. And so our love has to be channeled in the direction of service. Paul says that all the law is fulfilled in this one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, the way to test your spirituality is on verse 14. No, you can pray for 15 hours, but what you do with your neighbor afterwards <laughs> is, is, the, is your ranking. That's, that's the proof of your rank in the heavens. It doesn't matter how much anointing flows through your spirit. Again, if we take our eyes off the physical, off that which is visible because it's temporal, and if we place it according to God's own measure, right, you're going to realize that it is verse 14 that is the measure of your life. How much has the love of God conquered you? How much has the love of God made you a slave? That's what we're going to see towards the end. And that's what the love of God is supposed to do. It's supposed to make us slaves of Christ. And, and it's a kind of slavery that is born out of love. Okay, any comments on this or question or contribution before we move on? I have questions, but I'll have to listen to it again and then I'll get back to you. Okay. Okay, thank you, Steph. So can you read from verse 16 to 23? Okay, 16. Can you go up, please? Okay, from verse 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, reveries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 22. Mm -hmm. but, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such there is no law okay thank you so much Steph. remember that the focal point of paul's discussion in 
chapter five is, is what is stand fast, stand firm. And we've seen that the first practice that the one who will stand firmly will maintain is the practice of waiting, taking your eyes off the visible and casting it on the invisible. And you measure your life, not by the visible, but by the invisible. And then Paul is now dealing with the other side. So this is, he has first of all dealt with the first extreme, right? Which is the extreme of religion. Um, like the extreme of moral conservatism, if you like, which tries to be justified by words. And it says stand fast. But now to the other extreme of, of the lust of the flesh, which we have hinted at earlier. And like we're going to see the lust of the flesh are not external to us, right? They are internal to us. Just like the working of the spirit is internal to us. The antidote that Paul presents is walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know, I asked some people sometime if grace was automatic. You know, and it was a very difficult question to answer in that discussion. Um, what the Bible teaches is that there is a throne of grace and the Bible, the spirit of God invites us to draw near, to come boldly to that throne of grace. Meaning that even though we have been set free and we have been inducted, we have been adopted into the family of God, um, we have a choice to make. And that is, we can choose what orientation our lives will follow. We can either walk in the spirit, right? Or we can walk in the flesh. And my question is, what does it mean practically for you to walk in the spirit? How do you walk in the spirit? Because Paul is saying that this is the antidote to the lust of the flesh. And of course, lust of the flesh is very old English. Um, basically, the lust of the flesh here is the desires of our sinful nature, right? It's, it's the proof that all of us were born with the sentence of sin and the sentence of death, which is that we, if, if we take the Ten Commandments and you look at how we break all of them, for example, we are naturally covetous, right? You realize that there is no amount of material possession that satisfies us. <laughs> like we, we, it's as if we have to really discipline ourselves to be satisfied with our lot. And Jesus had to say that, that a man's, like the value of a man's life is not in the abundance of his possession because there's something about us that's always looking at the grass on the, on the field outside of ours. This is what the Bible calls the lust of the flesh. And this lust of the flesh, if they remained as lost, they won't have been so much of a problem. The, the problem with the lust of the flesh is that they produce works. <laughs> they produce certain works. And Paul says that the works that they produce are evident. So if you look at the progression, it doesn't begin as works. It begins as lusts in the heart. And then it produces adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. You know, many things are not even listed here. Drunkenness, reveries, and the like. And Paul makes it very clear that he had told them before that those that make a practice of such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is not a topic for today, but you can see here that the fact that someone was adopted into, into the family of God and became an heir of God does not mean that they will end up in that destiny, actually. We have, we have seen this briefly many times, but this is not our focus. This, this question is answered more um, much 
more plainly in the book of Hebrews, right? But I just wanted to highlight it there, right? That there, is, that there are still ifs to salvation. And those ifs are not meant to scare us or meant to take us back into a legal mindset, but they are meant to remind us that the one who called us is holy and our calling is a holy calling. And Hebrews chapter 10 says that if we, if we despise his holiness, you know, if we trample upon his goodness and we decide that because of his goodness, we're going to go on in lasciviousness, that the problem is that there's no other sacrifice that remains for that kind of lifestyle. The only thing that's left is a fearful looking for of judgment. And Paul is saying here that the antidote to this is to walk in the spirit. What does it mean to walk in the spirit? And how do you walk in the spirit? I, I'm wondering if this is linked to what we talked about in Romans the last um, okay. the last um, like reckoning yourself dead to the mm -hmm. sin and uh, life to God and what else did we talk about? Uh, that's the one I remember. Yeah. Uh, Romans of the six, right? Reckon yourselves alive, dead to sin, dead indeed to sin, and alive to God. Right? Basically, what walk in the spirit means is, is what I said earlier, which is pay attention to the reality. You know, a lot of times we, we are looking for power on the external. But, but the way of scripture is always pay attention to the one who is inside of you and then the power on the external would, would flow. A lot of times we are running from pillar to post, looking for help, going from message to message, from ministry to ministry, hoping that something from outside of us would, would hit us one day and all our problems would be gone. Paul is saying, pay attention to the reality. In the midst of all your religion, in the midst of all your activity, pay attention to the reality become saturated with God. You know, like, like when you wake up in the morning, rather than looking for the next thing to do, begin to look for God. Like we said earlier, God is not in the, in the formula, but he is in, the, he is in the spirit. Take out time and say, God, I just want to be saturated with you. Because walking in the spirit is something deliberate. What is going to set two Christians apart is who walks in the spirit and who does not. It's not automatic, friends. One is going to wake up and decide to look for God. Another one is, is going to wake up and decide to go on the strength of their humanity. And Isaiah 40 tells us that even the young men, even the young men, those who, who, by, who by nature are supposed to have strength, even them will become weary. But only those that wait upon the Lord, only those that are conscious of his presence. So to walk in the spirit is to put on the spirit, to be saturated with him to pay attention to him. You see, in our generation, worship has become almost like, almost like an end in itself. You know, like when I say worship, I mean worship music. It has become an, an, an end. What I mean is we focus on musical perfection so much. And of course, a lot of big ministries today get it right. But the unintended effect of that is that we listen to music for how it's able to lift our soul and you know, make us feel good. So some people wake up in the morning and they just play music and they feel good and they move on with their thing. But you see, music and worship was supposed to be a ladder. Yes, it was supposed to be an end in itself so that as we worship God, we are satisfied, but it was also supposed to be a means to an end. 
is it's supposed to be a ladder. The songs are supposed to be like songs of accent because, because your reality is in the heavenly Jerusalem. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 says, that we have come to Mount Zion. That's where you are domiciled. That's where all your possibilities are. The only thing is that it's not visible. And when you wake up in the morning, it's very easy for your eyes to be turned to everything that is visible. But Paul says, walk in the spirit. That's where the power is. The power is in the spirit. It's not on TV. It's not on YouTube. It's not in a sermon. The only thing those things can do is that they can, they can activate something in you. Right? And the reason why I listen to two-hour sermons is not because of everything that is said for two hours. There's nobody that can remember everything that's said for two hours. But what you're looking for is that word, that rema, that proceeding word of God that will activate the moving of the spirit of God in you. And you may despise everything in your life, but do not despise that activity of God. Like I asked earlier, if you look at your life right now, what is the love of God asking you to do? Is it asking you to, um, to come into fellowship, you know, to call somebody, for example, to open up to someone? Right? Is, it, is it asking you to begin to pray at night, for example? Is it asking you, and I'm not talking about religious exercise to try to please God. <laughs> I'm talking about what the love of God is doing. You know, there are certain things that react with your spirits that don't react with other people's spirits. You know, those are indicators of what God is calling you to do or not do. If, if we are to use a canal example, for example, there are some people that if they eat anything that has vanilla in it, their face and their skin begins to react. There's no, there's no rule book that you can say, no, you're not supposed to be having this experience. For that person, if they don't want those reactions, they're supposed to avoid vanilla. It's not a sin to eat vanilla or to eat chocolate, but the thing reacts <laughs> with your body. And if you care about your body enough, and if you don't like the reactions, you are supposed to quit it. So that's why the spirit of God is going to bring government into our lives. It's going to tell us that this thing that you've been watching, I want you to pull away from it. It's, that's the working of the love of God. It constrains. But the thing is that we don't pay attention to that working. And we're looking for the power externally. But Paul says work in the, work in the spirit. And he tells us that the fruit of the spirit is love. You know, I always say that anytime you come to a scripture that has a list like this, it's very important for you to focus on the entry point of that list, you know, because if you miss the entry point, then you might as well forget all of the rest of it. So in Matthew chapter five, Jesus began to speak about the tenants, um, the Magna Carta, if you like, of the kingdom. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. If you miss that point, forget about everything else he says, because the access, the doorway into the kingdom is, is poverty of spirit. It's when you acknowledge that you cannot help yourself, when you acknowledge that your wisdom is not sufficient, when you acknowledge that your righteousness is not sufficient, and that acknowledgement draws you to God. That's the entry point. That's the basis upon which you're going to explore everything else that's in the kingdom. So that's just an example. And here it says that the fruit of the spirit is love. It brings us back to that point, which is that the way you know that your walk in the spirit is prospering is that the love of God will begin to be magnified in your life. <clears throat> so no matter how spiritual you are, no matter how, how spiritual you are, friends, no matter how much you pray and fast, anytime you notice that joy is dissipating from your soul, peace is dissipating, your, your ability to persevere, long-suffering is dissipating, kindness is dissipating, goodness is dissipating, faithfulness 
you know, sometimes when things are new and people are new, it's very easy for us to get excited about them. But when they start becoming old, we start losing interest and start looking for the newest thing. But faithfulness is something that the spirit produces, right? Gentleness, self-control. There's an approach some people take to the fruit of the spirit that is still very legalistic, right? Which is that they take this list and begin to read it and begin to ask you, do you have joy in your life? These are three ways to bring joy into your life. If you don't have joy in your life, something is wrong. But Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a seed that a man cast into the ground and he went his way. And he doesn't know how, but so that's how fruits are born. The man does not focus on the fruits. He focuses on the seed, on the spirit. So I know you have problems. I know you have unanswered prayers. I know you have things that have not been perfected in your character. But allow the Holy Spirit to take your eyes off of those things and to fix it on him. It's called the fruit of the spirit because even without your um, anxiety about it, it's going to grow if you, if you pay attention to the reality. Jesus says, abide in me. You know, there are some things that cannot be taught. I'm sorry that I'm telling you about things that cannot be taught because I really want you to hunger and test for the experience. Abiding in Jesus is not something I can teach you. It's something that you only know when you decide to do it. Because Jesus said that if you abide in me, you will ask whatever you want. So there is, a, there is a level of answer to prayer that only those who abide can know. It cannot be taught. It cannot be handed over. It's intimate. It's, it's personal. Say, so just abide. Just continue. Just stay in me. Keep focusing on the reality. I know that your external circumstances still look like they're not going to change. But abide. Abide. That's the secret of your, of your fruitfulness. That's how the virtues of the life that has come upon you is that's how those virtues are going to manifest themselves. And he says, against such, there is no law. Bringing us back to the point that we should take our eyes off of what God is doing through us. As wonderful as it is, let's focus on what he's doing in us. For that should be the basis of our lives. And then we conclude from verse 24 to 26. Stephanie? From verse 24 to 26, and those who are, in, who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the spirit, let us also walk in the spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Thank you, Steph. Verse 24 says, and those who are Christ <laughs> have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see? Those who, have Christ, those who are Christ have not, because they are Christ, decided to embrace the flesh. Because at the end of the day, the, the day true love, the proof of true love is in sacrifice. And Jesus calls us to the altar, friends. He calls us to the altar of sacrifice. And the only thing that you can actually give to Jesus is the, the, <laughs> that you can lay on the altar for Jesus, that is a hindrance in your work with Jesus, is the passions and the desires of the flesh. You know, in the Old Testament, the emphasis was always on idolatry, which is the hunger they had to have a visible God. You know, this is Yahweh. We have not seen him before. We need something we can see, something that is decked with gold and precious stones, you know, so that it looks large and big. So you, you see the issue of idolatry popping up over and over again in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament. But in the New, the, um, the relative to idolatry is the lust and the desires of the flesh. Christ will profit you very little, if not nothing, in this earth if you choose that the way you want to use your freedom 
is to serve the desires of your flesh. You might get even, if you continue on that path long enough, you might get to a place where the inheritance that was supposed to be yours, like we saw in verse 21, can be withdrawn. Because Paul says that anyone who makes a practice of certain things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, I've told you before, and I'm telling you again. He says, but those who have Christ, who are Christ, they have crucified the flesh. That's what the love of God is supposed to do in our hearts. It's supposed to make us put the, put the flesh on the altar. There are many times he's going to ask you not to sleep, but to tarry in prayer. He says, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. And when that moment comes, you just lay the flesh on the altar and you move. There are times when he's going to ask you to tarry in prayer. I want to work out something inside of you and I want you to tarry in prayer. That's actually the purpose for the long prayers. The long prayers is not so that we can come and announce it, that we prayed for 12 hours and things moved. <laughs> things moved. Ah, one day when we have time, we would, we would examine the gospel and see how Jesus cares so much more about the minister than the ministry. How Jesus can throw away all the ministry only so that the minister can be saved. He cares so much. And so the first person that was supposed to be changed by the 12 hours is the person who engaged in it. But you see, for you to engage in that kind of prayer, you have to crucify the flesh. You have to, you have to submit it to the feet of Jesus. And then in verse 25, he says, if we live in the spirit, so if that's our reality, if we say that my reality is in the spirit, that my sonship is in the spirit, that, that um, God has justified me, then let us also walk in the spirit. Let's also make it our goal to walk in the spirit. The only thing, friends, that we can lay on the altar is our passions and our desires. Paul tells us that the flesh lost after the spirit. The flesh is the, is the primary hindrance to the move of God. It's one of the things that prevents us from standing fast, the flesh, you know, because we, we, we will not be able to pray when we want to pray. I've seen, I've seen how that some people's life, everything is okay, except that they are stuck in a cycle of, of something. Perhaps the most popular one in Germany is a cycle of pornography. And as little as you may say, that kind of indulgence is, it is the reason why <laughs> the confidence to express themselves in the kingdom of God is completely lacking because there's this one thing that keeps bringing them down. But tonight we want to lay it on the altar. And that's where Galatians chapter five ends. Paul tells us to wait eagerly, to wait, to wait eagerly. To, to take our eyes from off the mundane and to fix it on the unseen. He tells us to love with all our hearts and he tells us to walk in the spirit, to put on Christ daily, to be saturated with God. As we close, I just want to read to us Ephesians chapter six, because that's where Paul talks about the standing posture of the believer. He says, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his mind. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to, to stand against the wiles of the devil. Because of the fact that Satan is ancient, he's older than all of us at least, right? And he knows that we are, we, are, we are beings of a sinful nature. We are beings of the flesh. The only thing he needs sometimes to bring us under subjugation is what the Bible calls wiles and tricks. You know, he brings anxiety into your heart. He brings lust into your heart. He begins to make something have a heightened sense of importance that you should not have. 
And Paul says that the way to withstand him is to put on the whole armor of God. See, the whole armor of God is God himself. <laughs> because if you're putting on the whole armor of God, you might as well say, put on God. That's, that's a good way to think about it. Put on God. Put on God. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, again, take up the whole armor of God, put on God. You see, like next time that you sit to pray, tell yourself that I'm not here for blessing. I'm here to be saturated by the presence of God. This is my habitat. This is where I belong. This is where my strength is. This is my glory. This is, this is what matters. I want to lay hold on that which is invisible. I want to lay hold. And he says, stand therefore, having your waist gathered with truth. Again, Paul goes on to list um, what comprises of that armor. And we're going to use the same principle, which is that if you miss out on the entry point, right, you're, you can as well um, forget about the rest. He says, having your waist <laughs> gathered with truth. Anyone who's going to put on God, like Nancy mentioned earlier, has to be committed to, to truthfulness, telling the truth to yourself, telling the truth to God, telling the truth to other people. You know, it's a religious performance-based mindset that makes us liars. Have you realized? When we think that our worth is in how good we appear to be, how perfect our history is, when someone asks us a question about our history that is not so perfect, we don't have the confidence to tell them the truth because towards our self-image and our acceptance is tied to how well what we're saying can sound. <laughs> but Paul says the way to stand is to have your waist gathered with truth. And like my pastor said recently, if, if you are the only one telling yourself the truth, then you're probably deceived. Truth does not exist in a vacuum. Truth exists in the context of the body of Christ. The Bible calls the church the ground and the pillar of truth. And so there must be those who speak truth into your life on a personal level, on a corporate level. And if, you, if, you, if, you, if your waist is gathered with the belt of truth, I tell you, everything else that follows is possible in your life. And then he, says, he mentions them. He says, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then the way you know that you are dressed, he's telling you to put on the whole armor of God. And how do you know that you are dressed? He says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all sins. How you know that something is wrong with your armor is that prayer dissipates from your spirit. And I'm not talking about formal prayer. Paul says in Galatians 4 that we cry out. Whether we're in the marketplace or we are in the store or we're at home or we're having a bad day, we cry out. When you go for a long season and even crying out, that basic level does not flow from your spirit easily to your father. It's time to revisit the place of waiting and ask Jesus to help you. Okay, thank you so much.
friends. This is where we would stop with Galatians chapter 5 tonight and conclude next week with Galatians chapter 6. Before we pray into this, do you have any questions or contributions before we pray? Was it clear? Thank you so much, Josh. Um, so I, I have a question and I think you've touched on it, but I just, I, I just, I would love if you could just clarify a bit more. With regards to the fruit of the spirit, you said um, the entry point is love. So if there's no love, then you've missed it from that point. So what I want to ask is, is it possible to exhibit one fruit of the spirit and not the other so let's say you have love now is it possible that you won't have joy and peace or, and then you have long suffering and kindness and then you won't have faithfulness but then you have self-control yeah that's a good question um this is one of the reasons why i don't like um, looking at some of these lists in the context of a list you know because it looks as though these things are kind of separate from each other right but at the end of the day the measuring stick is love. When, when love is in the right place, love for God, love for yourself, love for other people, when it's in the right place, faithfulness will follow, self-control will follow. And this list is just a map, right? So that when you see any of these things missing, you go back to the foundation of the love of God. Jesus said to, to the church in Ephesus that the only thing I have against you is that you've forgotten your first love, even though you have discernment and all of this stuff forgotten your first love so practically speaking yes you can see a believer right that um is exhibiting some kind of love but without self-control but remember that this is a fruit it's not something that is um it, it's something that's that is based on maturity it, fruits grow fruits mature so yes as you're growing in love you're going to not have self-control in many things and in many ways. In fact, no matter how mature you are in love, <laughs> you're going to not have control in some things, for sure. And it is as you are perfected in love that self-control grows, right? It's as you're perfected in love that faithfulness grows. It's as you're perfected in love that gentleness grows. So that's just what I would say, to, keep, to always keep the focus on the love of God. That's what the fruit is working out. It's the love of God that will produce everything else. If you find something lacking, I've found things lacking before. I found that even though I'm kind to most people, because of certain things that happen, I stop being kind. I found it happening. <laughs> so does that mean that I'm no longer a believer or that I don't, I don't have the spirit? No. But it means that something, something affected my love. I was beginning to look at the things that are visible. I lost touch with the things that are invisible. And so I had to go back to the spirit. And, and God is faithful. He would make something happen that will show you that, that you are drifting. You are drifting. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you very much. Okay. Sorry, Josh, just one question. Mm -hmm. I, know, I, I don't know if you can answer. Is this like uh, the walks of the flesh, right? Mm -hmm. So, like you mentioned, you know, regards to the fruit of the spirit, some can be great, as you can be walking in that, no problem. But then there are just some that, you know, you 
do like today and then you cry out to god oh lord and then the next day again like outburst of anger or something and it's just like you know the enemy just knows your mumu button and he just presses it at any you know and you just find yourself falling and falling for that trick again and again i mean at what point as when will god actually you know read us of these things or is it like for me i'm like is it that i shouldn't talk to anyone anymore or something like i don't know if you understand what i'm saying exactly because you keep on crying to god lord help help." and you know that this thing is a major hindrance you know it is but it is just that one thing okay you know you've been trying to read yourself Mm -hmm. yeah so stephanie if you look at verse 16 right there are many things that paul says cry out to god about but not this the fruit of the spirit is not one of them Right, and because there are many things that God will not do for us, because if He does them for us, it takes away, it takes away the beauty of our sonship. Right, He says, "Walk in the Spirit." He didn't say pray about it. He says, "Walk in it. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit." And if you know what walking is, think of when a baby begins to walk. There's a lot of stumbling, right? And it's normal that you stumble. There's going to be a lot of stumbling. It's very normal that you stumble. But remember that it's a walk. It's a walk. What I would say is always pay attention to the spirit. When you see yourself um, not living up to even your own standards or the standards of scripture, go back to the reality. Paul says, reckon yourselves. It's, it's a reckoning. It's an accounting procedure. He didn't say cry to God. There is nothing, if, if, if God decides that he wants to humble you, you know, Peter says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He says, do it yourselves. If God decides that he wants to do it, you're going to have wished that, you know, you actually did it yourself. Because of course, God can humble you, you know, he can, can make things happen that shouldn't have happened. And you're like, God, was there no other way to have told me except to allow this thing to happen? Right? And that's what happens when God tries to um, speed up your journey. But the spirit of sonship is in walking. So I'm, I'm, I'm not supposed to cry out to God about my anger per se, because if, if I cry out from today till tomorrow, the anger will still be there. I'm not supposed to cry out to God about my, about my lust. Right? See, like, look at the language Paul is saying. He's saying that those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. They have crucified it, right? It's, it's a choice. It's a deliberate decision. Of course, don't get me wrong. Um, it's possible that you can get into a place of bondage where what you're facing is spiritual because Romans 6.16 says that anyone you yield yourself, servants to obey, you become a slave of that thing. So when something has, has the has the um, tone of slavery in it, then there needs to be a casting out, right? And it's it's in that casting out phase that you cry out. Anyone who doesn't cry out, who is not desperate enough, will not experience a casting out, right? However, when the casting out has happened, a walking must happen, which is why you see some people, it's as if demons are cast out of them every single, that's not God's design. That's not God's intention. If you want God to treat you like that, he can definitely do it, right? But the intention is that you walk. You're going to stumble, but you walk. You walk until you learn to walk. 
you reckon until it dawns on you. You reckon until it dawns on you. Does it make sense, Steph? Yes, Joshua, thank you. It makes a lot of sense, thank you. Okay. 